Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 94. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, red card for iPads, multi-screen madness and Mike's bot bot. I know, don't ask, just don't ask. Yeah, and a classic from Alex this week who, if you remember, sent us a link to the OneNote team's parody from... uh, Les Miserables, or should we say? Oh, don't start with the teeth so early, dear. <laughs> Les Mis. Yes, I do recall, much to the chagrin of your teeth. Yes, Alex said, um, oops, sorry, I just posted you a one-note parody again. Didn't realise I'd already posted it, doe. And then listening to the latest episode and it was on. But of course, I blame the frequency of the podcast. I'm starting to lose my grip. Easily done, Alex. The current run of shows is causing much losing of grips, not to mention delinquency. You know who you are. But on to the news this week, and the news is of Siri's imminent arrival on your Mac. Macworld are reporting that a patent application suggests Siri may ship on the Mac with Yosemite. The patent was entitled Intelligent Digital Assistant in a Desktop Environment. But of more interest, I thought, was the accompanying diagram which showed a touch screen on said Mac. You know, I can't really see me using that, except maybe as a novelty. I actually thought I'd miss out on Siri with only having an iPhone 4 and an iPad 2, but no. Yeah, I thought it might be useful for things like Siri, open the MacBytes website in Chrome and log into the editor so I can add the show notes. But uh, heaven knows what it would come up with. Oh, nicely said, Siri. And something close to your heart and tech-related this week from United. Uh, yeah, from what I've heard, I didn't receive any email and I didn't receive a letter. Well, I got the letter on paper, headed note paper and everything. So let me enlighten you all. It says, prohibited items, electronic devices, ahead of the new season, we'd like to make you aware of some changes to the club policy regarding items you cannot bring into the stadium on home match days. As a result of the latest security advice, large electronic devices, including laptops and tablets, will be added to the existing list of prohibited items for match days at Old Trafford. We apologise for any inconvenience this might cause, but we are committed to putting the safety and security of all supporters as our number one priority. The following frequently asked questions are designed to address any queries you might have. Why are these changes being introduced? In line with UK airports, we are reacting to the latest security intelligence. These actions are designed to ensure the continued safety and security of all spectators. What exactly is a large electronic device? Well, there's the leading question, isn't it? Any electronic device that is larger than the maximum permitted dimensions of 150mm by 100mm. This includes laptops and tablet devices such as iPads, including iPad minis. Can I just point out at that point, they've put a capital I on iPad. That'll be autocorrect. Can I just point out something as well? Those um, things that the fourth official holds up with the time remaining and injury time and the substitutions they must be larger than an ipad that's them gone then anyway can i bring my smartphone or camera into the stadium provided they do not exceed the maximum permitted dimensions of 150 millimeters by 100 millimeters mobile phones and small lens cameras are permitted within the stadium Why is Old Trafford different from other stadiums? The regulations at each stadium are a matter for the relevant stadium management authorities. However, the scale of Old Trafford and the profile of Manchester United mean that the risk at this venue is unique. Possibly the risk of winning is pretty unique as well. Why can't I demonstrate that my device is genuine by powering it up on request? The configuration of the stadium and arrival profile of spectators means that this is impractical to deal with individual requests of this nature. Thank you for your cooperation on this matter. We look forward to welcoming you to Old Trafford. Regards, ticketing and membership services. That's not a person as far as I know. No, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure I believe that. Ulterior motives, you mean? Yeah, it's probably come from complaints from supporters who are stuck behind others using iPads to capture the action and uh, blocking the view from for supporters who are sitting behind. Reminds me of the day that Tannoy announcer asked people to sit down in front of the executive boxes because those in the boxes couldn't see. They're probably worried about image rights and recordings too, I'd have thought. Yeah, mind you, if I'd recorded any action from last season, I'd have probably deleted it by now. It's also funny that story's broken in the same week that the Premier League in England warned fans not to post unofficial videos of goals on Vine as it's a breach of copyright. 
Amazing coincidence, that. But it's not only iPads and tablets that they ban, though. There used to be a list outside the stadium. And I must admit, I prided myself on getting in as many banned items as possible. Uh, That might sound crass, but some of these items were um, ridiculous, I thought. The current list of items that you can't take in includes obvious stuff like alcohol. But there again, why not? They sell it in the ground. If they didn't sell it, I could understand it. Um, All ranges of bottles, cartons and stuff. But a couple of the ones that that made me smile. Um, Flasks. I remember my first football match and my dad took a flask. It could probably have kept half an army going for a month the size of it. And it's tradition, isn't it? It is a flask of bovril. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Um, Another one that made me smile was baby buggies or prams. I mean, what? Well, you wouldn't get that through the turnstile. And also, you know, if, if the baby's got a seat, paid for a seat then you wouldn't need the pram. And if the baby hasn't paid for a seat, we don't have terraces anymore, so where's it going to go? I just thought it was ridiculous to actually have it on the list. I mean, stuff like knives and weapons, I totally understand. Another one that made me smile was large suitcases. Well, that's that's for the day trippers. <laughs> I know it's a tourist yeah. attraction now, but good grief. Now, the one that I always did manage to sneak in was an umbrella. Umbrellas are actually on the list. As are radios. And you know... I got a radio in every week. Yes, but you were a friend of Sir Alex's. More to the point, Alex Ferguson knew that I had a radio every week because he was asking me what the scores were at the other games. So um, what they're now saying is that you can take in small lens cameras, which they're defining as three inch zoom or less. Um, Non-offensive flags, but apparently you can't take in offensive flags. And they're now allowing small fold up. um, I nearly said bananas. I meant umbrellas. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm thinking the blow up banana. (laughs) Uh, You can take a small bag in, but not a large one. And you can take clear plastic bottles of water, but it's got to be 500 millilitres or less without the top. I don't know what difference removing the top of the bottle of water makes. Well, the technical answer is probably the aerodynamics of a thrown bottle. But the real answer, I think, could have something to do with the increased chance of spilling it, which would mean you'd need to buy more from United. And the prices are expensive, bordering on criminal. I checked. I actually researched this. £2.50 for a Coke and £3 for a tiny plastic cup of tea. Now, I've I've got a beef with them with with regards to the tea. I bought my mama tea at a match many years ago. And it's like a thimble. It's it's so tiny. And again, it was a ludicrous amount of money back then. And today that is three pounds. Mum's cup was leaking. So she couldn't drink it fast enough without it pouring out the bottom. Um, so as I've said, so, some things I find completely ridiculous. I did always take a, a radio. I did take an umbrella. And you know my beef with the umbrella, don't you? Go on, what? People might think if you're inside a stadium and you sat down, what on earth do you need to take an umbrella for? This is going to come as a shock to to the uninitiated. The roof leaked. No joking. They had this roof built. It cost millions, didn't it? Yeah. And it leaked. So, of course, if it rained, you needed an umbrella. But the flasks did get me because I have always thought if you're taking a flask into a football match, you've probably got a wooden rattle in the other hand. And I doubt very much you're of an age where you're intent on throwing either of them onto the pitch. Probably not. Anyway, there's always hope because in 2010, the New York Yankees banned iPads from their stadium. But even they changed their minds. They reversed the decision two years later. So watch this space and let's see what United do when people turn up with them. Because as we've said, it is a tourist attraction and people bring stuff. You know, they're they're a way for... It's not just going to the game, is it, like it used to be? Pack up at sort of one o'clock and pitch up at the game. It's an event. People come from miles. Where are they supposed to put the stuff they've got with them? Which could include an iPad. So I'm sure we'll be hearing lots about this on the United forums, won't we? I'm sure we will. We will report back. But I found myself a new toy this week. An iPin. I read that as iTit. No, no, the iTit will formally be announced at the next Apple event, I'm telling you. This is the iPin. It's a tiny gadget. It plugs into the audio jack of an iOS device and it turns the device into a laser pointer for presentations. So to make that happen, there's also an accompanying app. And the app allows you to not only use this device, but it also controls the presentation. I thought problem with that is, you know, it's in the audio jack thing. So how do you take a phone call? But you can take a phone call by turning the pin 90 degrees. You don't actually have to unplug it. Cool. Are you buying one? Sadly not. Distraught to find it doesn't work in Europe. 
I know what you're thinking, an iPhone's an iPhone. I thought that, but apparently not. Got a link, which I'll put in the show notes, and um, this is the crux of it. Due to the issuing of amendments to existing standards in early 2011, the European Commission mandated to ensure that personal listening devices for consumers would be safe. And the amendment calls for voluntary settings from manufacturers of audio, video and information devices, to inc which include smartphones, to have a sound output limit under 85 decibels. Knock-on effect of that, which is, it won't work for the iPin, not enough power. Talk about nanny state. It is a cool toy, though. I've got a laser pointer built into my Kensington remote control that I use with PowerPoint. But uh, this is cooler, though a bit pricey. Although, no doubt it'll be on the band list from Old Trafford. <sighs> Something else for me to attempt to get in, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were actually singing the praises of some licensing this week. Yes, Drop Zone 3, which I've discussed previously when it was Drop Zone 2 in relation to the workflow that we have for transferring files between ourselves when we're working on a shared project. It was the app that sat in the menu, um, in the, up in the menu bar is a little icon, and it acts as a drop zone, hence the name, for locations, and that can be either local or online services such as TwitPic. So it's a great app. And previously, I had the direct version that I bought from the developer, but I also had the App Store version. And the reason that I got the App Store version was just really the, the ease of installing it. The apps are almost identical, but there is a subtle difference between the two. The whole of DropZone has this extensible framework for adding locations and functionality. But the sandboxing means that you've got a lot more flexibility with the direct version. So version 3 was recently released and it wasn't immediately obvious how to upgrade the direct version because I was on a machine that I had the App Store version on and I'm looking around thinking, you know, looking at their site, thinking, where do I buy this? Because I knew I had it direct from them. Most of the links were pushing you through to the Mac App Store version. So I bought it on the Mac App Store version and at the time there was some launch price reduction going on. So I started working with it and it was very different in terms of the features and the interface. And after a couple of days, I thought there's a glitch here. When I was dragging things to the menu bar icon, the drop zones vanished, which is pretty critical. Now, it was quickly updated by the developer, but then the App Store version got stuck in review for ages. Do you remember ScreenFlow? I think it was in there seven weeks, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember that. This one was almost as long. So eventually I decided I just couldn't wait any longer. So I headed off to buy an upgrade direct from the developer. And my first job was to find out how, how I could purchase direct from the developer. So the easiest way was to have the trial version installed and then use the upgrade option in there. So I downloaded and installed the trial. And there were two impressive points to that. I wasn't expecting all the settings to be retained because they weren't between version 2 and version 3. So it was a bonus when all the settings were retained. So when I finally headed off to purchase from the preferences window, so you're inside drop zone, you bring up the preferences and there's a license tab. And I got a message and it said drop zone is fully registered. Thank you. Purchased on the Mac App Store. Awesome, I thought. So you can buy via the Mac App Store, which means you've got the ease of installing it and all of that. No serial numbers to manage, but you can still have the speed of direct updates with the same version. So I'll probably do a full review of its features in a future show, um, as it is very different, much more interface. Um, I thought more interface than was needed for existing users, um, but apparently it's discoverability of features for newbies. So I'm sure that we'll have a look at that in the future, but just wanted to mention that that's licensing done right as far as I'm concerned. It is, for a change. Well, do you remember the, the debacle with the Omni Group? Yeah. That they couldn't... They, they were giving you a cross-grade thing, weren't they? Yeah, I remember that, something like that. They brought an app out and you put your, you put it pointed to your App Store versions and it generated you a serial number and it got pulled because Apple started playing heck over it. How, how are drop zones? I don't know, but let's be thankful they are. No, I have no idea. Well, we'll, we'll keep that. <laughs> don't mention that. We'll keep that quiet. <clears throat> anyway, yes, falling into the category of bizarre story of the week is the release of Hank Schreiter. Bizarre as it comes from Tom Hanks, the actor. Mm, I don't think he coded it himself, though. No, he's probably too busy fraternising with Wilson from Castaway. <laughs> Who's Wilson? 
I remember Wilson. No, not that Wilson. That was the cat we acquired at MacBytes headquarters, courtesy of the um, owner's registry foul-up. Anyway, back to Hank Schreiter, because we've got a guest review from McJim. Yes, we've had a PDF from McJim. And uh, the reason it's a PDF is so you get the full effect of the app. Today, I bought the Hanks typewriter app from the App Store. Why? Well, I like the novelty of this app and the way it works. It's got the sound of an old typewriter, three in fact at various price levels, and a look that pleases in a strange way. The style of the font is, as you can see, old fashioned to say the least, but in a nice way. You can make corrections, not easily, I have to say, but it forces you to do so manually or simply have the same style of redaction that an old typewriter does. And then he gives an example of, um, you remember the letters being crossed out? Yeah. There's a free version, a slightly noisy sounding typewriter with limited editing and features and two other upgrades. The writer's block bundle at two ninety nine, opening up all the features such as page alignment, background colour, typewriter model and other features. The Hanks Gold Touch at $199 or the Hanks 707 bundle, each giving you a variety of limited upgrades. While it's nice and a novel idea, it may over time become frustrating to use if you're used to other kind of text editing apps that autocorrect and the font style options, etc. But it won't break the bank if you go for the $299 Hanks Gold bundle. An odd but slightly novel way, pun intended, to write text for use in emails and other ideas. What you see here is an example of the finished article produced with this app, warts and all. Did you install it? I did, and I had a look at it. Yeah, I did. I had a little play with it. Um, Like you say, it's a bit of a novelty and a bit of fun. It's a bit like that app that I had. Do you remember my tapes? Oh, I do. I talked about that back in episode 75, the one that creates virtual cassette tapes on your iPad or iPhone. Is skeuomorphism gone mad? Yeah. But it's got a quite authentic feel to it. Like like my Jim says, quality. Yeah, and you can make corrections. So I'm wondering if it comes with virtual liquid paper. <laughs> you know, there's probably some kids out there who don't even know what a typewriter and liquid paper are. Well, a huge thanks to McJim for providing that review. Great to hear from you again. And this app's doing really well at the moment, isn't it? But I've got to say, would it be doing so well without the backing of Tom Hanks? I doubt it. It's all about the discoverability of apps, which leads us nicely into the open letter to Tim Cook from Jean-Louis Gass this week. Regarding the App Store and app discoverability, the essence of which I thought could be summed up in a quote from the letter. The App Store may be a gold mine, but it's buried in an impenetrable jungle. And what's his suggestion to solve this problem? Ah, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> to give him the job of creating an App Store guide. Do we need an App Store guide? You know, I don't think we do. You, you go on Google, you go and search the App Store, you read people's reviews, you take... So you're suggesting human as he's suggesting? Yes. You see, it's the independence of that that concerns me. So you don't want the App Store police then? Well, exactly. No, I I think everything moves a little bit too fast for for a guide to keep up. I plus the fact I think you can find stuff. Do you say it's not easy? Because I was looking for an app. I didn't know the name of the app because I didn't even know if the app existed. I was looking for an app to display a watermark on my screen. That sounds odd. What I really wanted was um, a window of an app to float over the top of all the other windows on my Mac. So if you think of how the ITV works, it's got a pin to top option, hasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. But this was the tricky bit. I didn't want there to be any indication that the graphic that I wanted to float over the top was in a window. So I wanted it to look like a watermark, similar to a lower third in broadcasting, but completely transparent apart from a very faint so it was like a watermark, um, a faint URL. Now, something like that is completely simple with pro-level software, the stuff I use for live sessions, but it's not so easy with webinar platforms. And I didn't even know if an app like that existed, much less what it was likely to be called. Now, it took me a while to tweak the search terms, but I did find an app that did exactly what I wanted to on the App Store. So I think there's certainly scope for improvement, but I was amazed I did manage to find exactly what I was looking for. And I wasn't just thinking, what's that app called where I, where I knew of the app? I had no idea if an app like that even existed and I found it. So room for improvement, maybe. But I think at some level it does work. There's certainly scope for improvements, though. So 
What what would you do to improve it? The biggest thing that annoys me is the speed of it. It It's so slow to load. And I'm talking about the Mac App Store here. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. You know, when you click on it, when it loads, it's not bad. It loads in the first page, but it's when you click on one of the options at the top and it can just sit there for at least 20, 30 seconds while it thinks about it. It's probably running on a 486 or something. Or the iCloud servers. That could explain a lot. (laughs) I just find it very slow. So that's the first thing. I think it could run a bit faster. Um, I do like to work in the way I work in a browser. I would love it if I could have two pages open so I can compare apps side by side. Good one. There is no concept of that at all. And I'd love to be able to do that. Um, Another gripe is... You know when you've installed something and you can't for the life of you remember what it's called? Yeah. So you want to go to your purchases tab and have a look for it. Yeah. Zero organisation there at all. I've got stuff that I've downloaded that I don't really want to see. I've got other stuff that I consider to be like primary apps that I'd love to be able to star in some kind of way. Just, I suppose I want folder organisation, don't I? Yeah, I'd like to see um, the ability to sort that list. You can't just click on the column headings and sort. No, even that would help. If it was alphabetical, it would help. Yeah, I find that quite difficult. Again, because I suppose it's all exacerbated by the fact it loads so slowly. Um, One thing I thought about as I was thinking about this and thinking, you know, what would perfect look like? I thought, do you know what the app store would look like perfect to me? Go on. No games in there. I am never, ever going to be buying a game. Just as as I'm sure other people wouldn't be interested in music software or video editing software. So I think it'd be fantastic to be able to exclude categories. And I would lose the games entirely. Yes, I think a few Mac biters like Jane would as well. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon, though, is it? No. (laughs) Knowing what Apple have got in mind, that's not going to happen. Uh, Another thing that I often try and do, and I end up having to do it manually, is just the option to save something for later, you know, like... um, a wish list kind of thing. That would be good, yeah. But I don't think there's anything like that either. I, it's beginning to sound like what I want is Amazon mm. shoehorned into the app store. That would work. That would work for me. But I think there's scope, but I'm not sure about a guide. It reminded me of, you know, when you went in Smith's in the mid 90s and you found a big sort of telephone directory thing that said, directory to the internet oh yes and you were meant to buy this paper guide and take it home and sit there and type in all the urls and then they were out of date and they were inevitably out of date no it just reminded me of that a guide it's something that's a point in time rather than like a living breathing thing unless he's got in mind some living breathing thing but again it's all about independence and and how these apps are it's not just how the individual person finds an app it's how the reviewers find the app how do they get there? Is it still the ones with the, with the best, you know, the, the most well-known developer, uh, the, the biggest star behind it? I, I'm not too sure about that. I, I like the level playing field concept. Anyway, moving on, we heard from James this week. And that's Petrolhead360 on Twitter to the uninitiated. And he had a fascinating story about his MacBook Pro. Hi, Elaine and Mike. I thought it might be interesting for you and your listeners to hear about my recent experience with my MacBook Pro. I'm an avid listener to the MacBytes podcast good man, and don't recall the following subject being covered. Please feel free to edit if a little long, as if I would do that. It's such a good story. I have an early February 2011 MacBook Pro, 2 gigahertz Intel Core i7, 16 gig of RAM, running OS 10 10.9.4, and I swapped the hard drive with a crucial 500 gig SSD about six months ago. It has two graphics components, an AMD Radeon HD 6490M and a built-in Intel HD Graphics 3000. In mid-July, it wouldn't awake from sleep one evening with the screen remaining black and no noise from the unit. I tried a hard reboot and the screen had thin lines across it, but the real noticeable difference was the Apple logo. It was green. The screen went blank. It was grey. With no log-on display appearing, this was looking serious. Booting into safe mode produced a deep blue screen with vertical black lines, again no log on. After various attempts at booting, I gave up and I booked a Genius Bar appointment at the Milton Keynes Apple Store, where after a short test in a back room, the Genius confirmed that it was a graphics component failure. As this was part of the motherboard, it would be an expensive repair and they quoted £416, including VAT. After some consideration about selling it for spares and buying a MacBook Air, I gave the go-ahead for the repair. 
Later, after Googling the problem, I discovered a thread on the Apple discussion forums with over 450 pages and 7,500 comments, all about the same issue with the 2011 MacBook Pro and graphics card failures. Apart from the main problem of having a dead MacBook Pro, the other topic hotly discussed with so many MacBook Pro owners was stroke is that Apple will not respond nor accept that this is a manufacturing problem and to accept a replacement or repair plan. Apple have in the past been very good to me and have given me great service, often free of charge. Ideally, I would have liked the repair free of charge or at some discounted rate. I collected my repaired MacBook Pro five days later and felt duty bound to register my complaint. This was the most expensive computer I'd ever purchased and I expected it to last longer than three years. My white 2007 MacBook is still working fine after seven years. I complained about the situation to the engineer and was given the advice to register my complaint officially with AppleCare where it would be recorded. I didn't think this would help as I've never paid for AppleCare, but this didn't seem to matter. The next day I rang AppleCare with my complaint clearing my mind and with the approach that I should take, i.e. calm and disappointed in Apple as a loyal customer. After a couple of transfers from department to department, I finally talked to a guy in the consumer rights support department. This guy was absolutely fantastic. He advised me of my rights and asked whether the store had advised me of them. Not surprisingly, they didn't. But the fact that he asked me, I felt, was odd. After listening to my complaint and disappointment in the brand Apple, he said that I was justified under European trading laws and that he would take up my case on my behalf. He then called the store and, I believe, argued my case. He basically said that not all stores understood the European consumer's rights and that he was there to support customers like me and to advise the store's management. He said the store would call me soon and if they didn't, then to call him back and he would not give up. His contact details and case number were sent to me immediately via email. In under one hour, the store called to confirm the full refund. I was over the moon with this outcome. Thank goodness I didn't give up. So if you're in Europe and you have this problem with a 2011 MacBook Pro, call AppleCare and make a formal complaint. Of course, I did this after the repair and there was an engineer's report stating that the MacBook Pro had a failed component, which backed up my story. My faith has been restored in Apple's products and the fact that they have a department to listen to customers and are prepared to take action on their behalf. According to the forum thread, the theory is that this is a heat and soldering issue on the motherboard and may happen again with any replacement. The repair does come with a 90-day warranty. In future, the guy at AppleCare recommended using the Apple feedback system to make a formal complaint as these are always read by senior Apple employees and would be assigned a case number. I guess they pay little attention to the standard forums. The conclusion I draw from this experience is to make an honest complaint and persist as there is a lot of ignorance with European consumer trading laws for electronic goods with both customers and store personnel, so don't be brushed off. There are many fresh reports of the same problem added to this thread and I get an email update every day. 871 emails in one month. Will Apple ever acknowledge this problem officially or do they hope to keep it quiet and deal with requests for free repairs through the official complaints process? I hope that this is of help and interest to the MacBiters. Well, that is awesome news for James, isn't it? It is. That's fantastic. Also, I thought a little worrying that the service could be different depending on the store you visited. Had no idea of that. I thought you're dealing with Apple. Surely it's down to the stores to make sure that the staff are aware of these trading laws. Agreed. But our experience is certainly varied. The good, the bad and the ugly of Apple Care, I'd say. I'll go with the good. Um, our first Mac repair was a 20-inch iMac and those were in the halcyon days at the Trafford Centre and it was repaired within three days. Also had my iPhone 4S replaced, my iPod Touch replaced both on the same day, actually, your iPhone 4 replaced, and you even managed to um, acquire a MacBook charger, which was replaced after the AppleCare expired, didn't you? I did. That was a good one. Uh, The bad, my 2009 MacBook Pro, which is under my desk, um, asleep, sunsetted. My iPad with dead pixel. The Elgato TV card, where I had to quote the Consumer Goods Act at them. Oh, that was a classic, though, because you left the store, didn't you? I did to ring you. You took it back. I think actually it was one of mine. And you'd taken it back while I was uh, busy doing something else. And you rang me and said, you know, they won't change it, so I've had to come out the store. And I 
gave you chapter and verse and turned you right round and sent you back in, didn't I? <laughs> you did, yes. Oh, but you came home with a new ITV card. I did. And then there's the ugly. My 24-inch iMac repair at the Trafford Centre. Not good. Four trips back and three months later, it still wasn't right. I fixed it myself in the end. Then there was my 27-inch iMac repair, again via Apple Care, but this time a third-party repairer. Three trips back and damaged before Apple finally replaced it. So you could say there was a happy ending with that one. But I'd say if you've got any issues, take heart from James' experience and don't give up. That's what I'll be doing when I finally get round to dealing with my 27-inch iMac. You know, the one with the half-dark screen? I do. I'm still I'm still dealing with it, being, being a little bit on the busy side. It will be starting its return journey shortly. Watch this space for news of how that one goes. Absolutely. But again, thank you very much for sharing that, James. We're going to put that on the website as well. I think that is an awesome story. And I just think Apple should have a little bit more discoverability of that. Why don't they put a sign up in the store or something? It's not happening, is it? That says what? That, that tells you what your rights are. If there's somebody at Apple that will do that over the phone. It's a bit like a filtering system, though, isn't it? You really have to persist, which is exactly what James is saying. Don't give up. Yeah, That's a lot of money. And, and to think he was thinking maybe he'd have to sell the machine off for parts. When it's mm. it's now back and a perfectly functioning machine. Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. We don't like to think about that, but thank you for sharing that. That that is a really important story, I think. Yeah. Anyway, we have also had a few people mailing us all about databases. We have. Jill was listening to episode 71 where I discussed how to get access to data stored in Microsoft Access MDB files because Microsoft haven't built access for the Mac. I've also recently done some training for someone who's just switched to the Mac. He runs a small business. He had customer information in a bespoke database on Windows and he used the data to run mail merges with Word and he wanted to know what his options are now that he's moved over to a Mac. So with that in mind, I thought it was about time that we looked at databases on the Mac. What I've done is I've picked three apps to look at. Base, which is free. Tap Forms, which is inexpensive and FileMaker Pro, which is at the top end, should we say. Bankruptcy level. Yes. I was waiting for a comment like that from you. Mm. Oh, well, no, I'd love to try FileMaker Pro, but every time I think about it, the credit card cries. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's start with Base. It's part of LibreOffice, which is a free open source uh, office suite, which is available for Windows and Mac. It's got a word processor. It's got a spreadsheet, presentation application. Uh, it also has a diagramming application and a database called a Base. Now, like Access, Base is what they call a relational database. So data is stored in multiple tables, organized in such a way that you avoid data duplication. So you have two tables typically, which are linked together or related by having a common field in both. As an example, organizing your music collection. You could have an artist table that's got the artist ID and the artist name. And then you could have a records table, which has got the title and the, whether it's a single or an album, number of tracks, date of release, and the media it's on. So if it's DVD, CD, MP3 or vinyl, which goes very well with the Tipex and the, um, the typewriter from earlier. Yeah, I think that's like the modern version of the tablet of stone that your music's on. <laughs> Thank you. And of course, the you, you want to know who recorded that record. But instead of including the artist's name, you just include the artist's ID and link it back to the artist's ID in the other table. So that's, that's Someone's it. Someone's going in, to ask here, you know, why you would bother doing that if the only other data in the first table was the artist's name? Well, I'm trying to create a simple example. I'm trying to make it simplistic. Yes, but you would normally put more than the artist's name, wouldn't you? You might have the year they're formed. You might have um, a biography or something like that. Yeah. And you don't yeah. want to store that information multiple times with each record. You want to keep exactly. it separate and update it once. Exactly. 
Now, as part of my testing, I created a small database using that structure that we've just talked about. And I wanted to include the album covers in the database. So what I did is I took some screenshots from my iTunes of the album covers, saved them as JPEGs, and then created a special field in the table, an image field, a field to store a JPEG. However, when I tried to add the JPEGs to the form, it constantly crashed. Now, I'm sure you can guess which one caused the problem. Am I right? Am I right? Yes, you're right. It was. It was the Goombay Dance Band. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why did I do that anyway? Because that's what we have iTunes for. And that's the thing. So many use cases now for small databases can be satisfied by pre-built apps. And that's something that I want to talk about a little bit later on. Things like a shopping app or a music catalogue app. If I think about it, actually, years ago, I built an access database for contacts, but I quickly moved on to Outlook and then on the Mac, the address book. I built one to store football-related photos, although that was more of a, a hobby thing. But now I'd use iPhoto or something else. Not for much longer, you won't. Well, no, but... Um, the no, principles I don't actually, sound. The principles there, yes. Uh, most of the databases that I've ever created have been, I would, I would say, work-related, either for me um, or for a client. But, go, but going back to base... Uh, the functionality and the look and the feel is very similar to Access. So if you know Access, and I know some of our listeners do, we've discussed it in the past, um, it's very, very similar. When you open the app, you get the choice of creating a new database or open an existing one. And even the panel down the left-hand side has tables, queries, forms, and reports. So you have your tables to store your data. You have your queries, which allows you to search information, extract information. Forms are for inputting information in a nice layout and reports are for getting information out in a, a structured way, typically to print information off. So you create and you work with tables, queries, etc. very, very similar to Access. If you are used to using Access, as I say, you will be at home with Base very, very quickly at all. The main problem that I had was the interface. It To me, it looks like an open source freeware app. But you, you know how you say the interface sometimes looks Fisher-Price or you can tell it's a, a Windows app. Well, to me, this just looked like a, a, a freeware app. But I, I did try it when I first moved to a Mac and I thought exactly the same as you. It was um, not just basic. There was something lacking primitive yeah. about yeah. it i guess for me it's down to lack of familiarity if i was using it day in day out then i guess i'd be familiar with it now the windows version can open access database files but unfortunately the mac version can't the joys of system level drivers for data not mm. however all is not lost you can use one of the apps that i talked about back in episode 71 to extract the data and just as a reminder, I can't remember all of them, but I'll put a link in the show notes. There's about half, five or six apps um, which allow you to extract the data from an, an MDB, an access database file. You can't um, work with the queries and the forms, the reports, but at least you can get access to the data. You typically would save it as a CSV file and then import the CSV file into base. As I say, it won't import the queries, the forms and the reports from an access database. Although it's free, it's not pretty. And there is a, le a learning curve unless you are familiar with access. Can I just say that in terms of going back to 71 to listen to those reviews, 71 is worth a re-listen anyway. It was the old Razzle Dazzle show. Remember that? I do. Well, if you don't, it was the show where mum was introduced to the delights of the now sadly defunct Fish and Tips. Sadly sunsetted, you mean? Indeed. Uh, in relation to LibreOffice too, LibreOffice is coming to mobile. First for Android. Apparently, it's easier to develop for Android. It's 90% of the way there, but they are spending some time improving the UI. So if they do that for mobile, maybe it will reflect back onto the desktop. So LibreOffice is uh, playing catch-up as we've already got mobile versions of Microsoft Office and iWork. 
Yes, but no access for mobile, though. True. So you never know. Maybe base will make a know, mobile like appearance. Saying. Now, I didn't mention Bento at the start of this uh, review. Bento has been the database of choice for many Mac users, but last year FileMaker, who made it, announced they were discontinuing it. Now, I must admit, I've never actually used Bento, but I know that you have. I used it for one specific job and it worked perfectly for that job. I loved the mobility of the iPhone and iPad apps and I haven't really replaced it. I've taken the data back to a spreadsheet, which is where the data originally came from and is absolutely not ideal. But I just haven't dared risk going all in with another app because that might vanish too. Back in episode 84, we heard from Lynn and she said that she'll keep using Bento for the time being, although it's being discontinued. And she uses it for many things, including recording details of plants and vegetables and embroidery patterns. Perfect use cases for a database. I remember saying that. And until there's something perfect on a Mac, I'd keep using Bento too. Well, if you're looking for an alternative to Bento, have a look at Tap Forms. I was recently asked by a client who's just switched to the Mac to recommend a database. This was the, the person I mentioned at the beginning. He had a specific pur purpose. He needed to do a mail merge with Word. And he'd been using a contact management database on Windows. And it really came down to the choice of two, Tap Forms or FileMaker Pro. Now, FileMaker Pro is what I call an industrial grade database, which has got a price tag to match. Whereas Tap Forms is aimed at consumers rather than large corporations, but it would also suit small businesses. It's £20, $30 from the Mac App Store, and it does have iPad and iPhone apps which are sold separately for £5.99, which is $8.99 each. It does use iCloud to sync your data across devices. I'm saying nothing. I thought you might have a comment there. No, no, not a thing. <laughs> That's why I deliberately paused. I know. I'd have been disappointed if you'd said nothing. It also supports Dropbox as a backup location. Ah. <sighs> Dropbox. Now, for the Mac version, you can get a trial. They call it a demo version uh, directly from the Tapforms website, which is fully functional, but it only allows you to add a few records to each database. It comes with 26 predefined database applications, which in Tapforms, they call them forms. So if you go back to the example earlier of a, um, a your music collection, where I said we had two tables, then um, each of those tables would be called a form in tap forms. But some of the examples that come with it include software licenses, bank accounts, daily journal, website logins. And these forms can either be used as is or modified to suit your needs. And you can create your own forms as well. Now, what does creating a form involve? Well, it involves defining the fields to store the data. And if you want to change the field definitions and add fields later, you can as well. There's 20 field types. So things like text, numbers, dates, times, email address, checkboxes, file attachments, which gives you plenty of scope for creating powerful databases. And if I just give you two examples uh, from what I, I did in my testing, I created a form which I call MacBytes episodes. So I had an episode number, which was a number field, and it was set to auto increment, which generates the next sequential number automatically. I had a title, which is the, the title of the episode, and that was set to capitalization. So as I typed in the title, each word would automatically be capitalized. I had the release date, which is a date field, very much like you see in iTunes. I had the duration, which was a number field that's set to time format. I had a website URL, which uh, linked to the page on the MacBytes website with the show notes in it. And I had a notes field just for some, for, for some text notes. So you can see that it, it really is powerful and flexible. And my second example uh, was a form called fixtures for football fixtures. So I set up the date, I set up the venue, where I created what's called a pick list, which is like a drop-down list. So I had home, away, and neutral. I had opponent, goals scored, goals conceded, attendance, 
I had a field called rating where I chose, you can choose a number of stars. So I allowed up to 10 stars and then you can just, uh, for, for each match, choose. Optimistic given last season. Carry on. Yeah, and this and this season, yeah. Um, yes, this season started so well. I could choose the number of stars. Did you allow negatives? <sighs> no. Just wondering, just thinking out loud. All right, you, you think out loud and I'll carry on. I bet Andy and Carrie are joining this, aren't they? What you have is once you've once you've decided on your data structure, you then define the layout. So you define what you want the form or input screen to look like for looking at the data and entering the data. And the one of the great things about tap forms is it supports multiple layouts as well. So you can you can create multiple input forms for for different purposes, different views of the data. Extracting your information from your data is known as querying, which I mentioned earlier. The tap forms equivalent is searching. So I could do a search for um, no, I don't know all matches where we scored more than two goals. I know it won't come back with many. <laughs> You're not limiting uh, that by season, are you? No. Or all MacBytes episodes released in 2014. That's looking rather healthy, if, I, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> it is. Yes. Um, but, and you can save those searches. So if I wanted to run the, 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 the search every week of MacBytes episodes for, for 2014, then I don't have to keep setting up the search. You can also import data from CSV files. So if you have data from elsewhere, if you pulled it out of Access or Bento, then that's a good starting point. In fact, if you've got a Bento database, you can export both the data and the form and import them into tap forms. Now that's looking like a possible. Yeah. With Access, when you create a database, it creates a totally separate independent MDB file. So if I had 10 databases, I'd have 10 MDB files. You have one MDB per database. And the MDB is a standalone, as I said. Um, it contains all the field definitions, all the data, the the, the input form layouts, the query settings. Um, as, as an example, I've built a database at work for uh, our training course bookings, and it's got lots of, of tables, it's got lots of queries, but everything is stored in this one MDB file, which makes it very easy to back up the data. It makes it very easy to use the database on another computer. It makes it very easy to develop something on, on my computer and send it to a client. The thing is, with tap forms, there is no separate file. So in the example I've been talking about, I've got two separate call them what you like, applications, databases, forms. I've got the football fixtures and I've got the MacBytes episodes. Tap forms can export the data from a single form to a CSV file. So you can export the data, which is great for the mail merge scenario of my client. But if he wants to back up the forms and the queries as well as the data, and he's got multiple applications. Or if I develop something on my computer uh, and send it to him, then I have to uh, run a backup, send him the resulting zip file, which he has to restore. Problem is, this is a backup of all the forms and all the data. There is no way that I could find to back up just a single form. So if I've been developing database applications for 10 clients, I would have to send him this zip file, which would contain all the databases from all those 10 clients. It sounds like it's designed to be Bento, which is just for one person. I'd agree with you. Yeah. Not a showstopper, but like you and I design stuff for each other and, and hand it over. Yeah. That's not going to work. No. No. Oh, that's a disappointment. I had you all excited then, didn't I? You did. Yeah. You did. So if I move on to uh, FileMaker Pro, as I said, it's it's an industrial-grade database. It's got a price tag to match. And if I just give you the prices, a single license is $329. You, you can get a non-profit or educational license for $197. And uh, the FileMaker Pro Advanced 
which is FileMaker Pro plus a suite of advanced development tools, is $549. Now, they are slightly cheaper uh, for upgrades, but those are the full prices. It's aimed at businesses, it's aimed at developers. They're actually marketing it as a development platform. If I actually read to you what they've got on their website, it says, streamline your business with the FileMaker platform. Easily create custom solutions for iPad, iPhone, Windows, Mac, and the web that meet the unique needs of your organization. Manage customer data, track assets, organize projects, run reports, and more. And with the FileMaker platform, you'll be able to improve workflow, save money, and increase overall efficiency. So you can you can definitely see uh, where this is aimed at. It's also activated. I didn't know that. Which made me cry. Because if my machine dies, it takes it with it. Yeah, I know you don't like activated software. No, I don't. Now, there's, there's several ways to create a database. You've got 16 ready-to-use templates, which are very much business-oriented, like contacts, asset management, invoices, expense reports, etc. Or you can build your own. You can import data from a spreadsheet, or if you started with Bento or Tapforms and you find that they've outgrown your needs, you can export the data from there, a CSV, and then import it. You can drag and drop an Excel file into FileMaker and it creates the database for you using the headings from the first row of the spreadsheet from the, as, as the field names. And it creates basic import forms for you too, which are called layouts. You can also apply themes. There's 50, pre, 50 odd, I think, predefined themes, which is some of which are actually specially designed for touch devices. And it's got iOS support um, via an app called FileMaker Go, which is a free app for iPhone and iPad. It allows you to access your databases on your iOS device, both offline access and real-time access. So you can transfer databases using the iTunes file sharing or email or AirDrop, um, and that will give you offline access. For real-time access, you need to host the database on a FileMaker server, so iPhone and iPad users have the most up-to-date information instantly. Um, the cost, incidentally, is £1,600 for one server with five concurrent connections and £8,500 for one server with 50 concurrent connections. My credit card's totally given up now. It's past crying. <laughs> it's gone into meltdown, has it? I'm afraid it? so. You can see it's it's for corporates. As soon as you save the changes to the data via the iPad, anyone viewing it via any other device or platform will see the updated data. So you can use it for things like online forms to capture information, capture signatures for invoices or delivery receipts. Bet the Amazon guy uses something like that. Yeah, not at those prices, but carry on. <laughs> Uh, add photos, videos, audio from your device directly to your solutions with a few taps. Executive dashboard summaries with eye-catching eye graphs and charts. And you can even print from your iPad using AirPrint. So that's a look at three database apps for the Mac. Now, with those apps, you start with a blank slate, unless you want to start with one of those templates, and you roll your own. But actually, there's other apps that can be classified as databases. It's just that these are for specific purposes. I'd never actually thought of them as databases, but they are. So here's a countdown of the five most popular types of database app for the Mac. At number five this week, we have document management apps. And as an example, one that I don't use, but I know you do, is DevonThink, which allows you to store, organize, and manage documents in one place rather than in folders, lets you add tags, metadata, and lets you search for them. New entry at number four this week, especially for you, is shopping and recipe apps. No idea what you're talking about. We used one. Well, I used one. I just stuck stuff in it, I seem to recall, that I wanted you to buy me. I don't think you did, and that was a problem. Oh. It was called... <laughs> it was called Splash Shopper, and it had predefined fields like product, price, store, what aisle it was in, um, how many you wanted to buy, 
it actually does a lot more than just shopping. We actually just... How are you supposed to know what aisle the item is in? Well, exactly. And if they you go move to supermarket, it every week. I, I was just going to say that. They move them. No, I mean, it sounds fabulous in concept, but triaging something like that would take longer than doing the actual shopping with a paper list. I agree, and that's why we never used it. Ah, right. Yeah. It actually does a lot more than shopping, we, although we only used it for shopping, um, or not as the case may be. Um, it's, it's got things like list managers, to-dos, music, uh, movies, household, and th- there's other stuff in there. The benefit is that you don't have to think about the fields. It's all done for you. Um, but you can use it as a starting point and add your own if you want to. It's available for iOS, and we had um, the desktop companion app. The idea, as I said, was that we would fill it in during the week, and then it would sync to the iPhone, um, and then when I went out for food shopping, everything would just be there. Although we actually find it easier to use a shared Evernote note, don't we? That works. It does. And it's simple. It does. Recipe apps, similar to shopping apps, you've got an app with a predefined set of fields for things like the item, the quantity, the cooking instructions. Some even tie it up with the shopping app and then let you define uh, the price, where to buy it, and it will tell you how much the whole meal costs you. I don't wish to know information like that. Should we move on? I think we should before I cry because I've had a rather stressful week, haven't I, after the fish incident? Yes. I needed, this will come as an alarming shock to everybody, it came as an alarming shock to me, I needed to cook a piece of fish. I had no idea how long that took. And I wondered how I didn't know that. It took nearly half an hour, incidentally. And I recalled when I did cook, it never used to take that long. And then I realised why. Do you want to share that? I think I should. In my recollection, my meals took precisely four minutes to cook. And then I realised why. I ate a lot of pot noodle. Fish takes much longer to cook than pot noodle and I shan't be partaking again for a while. Should we move on? In at number three is books and DVD library apps. And an example being Delicious Library. Now I use that. That actually had a lot in it. There was at a glance reports. You could see the value of your collection, total running times, you know, DVDs and CDs. You could break it down by media. You could put your books in. You could also scan the barcode of books with um, the back camera. That was uh, traditionally in there, but the items have been added to the library along with all the information. And now you can do that from iOS. There's a free app um, and it's just a, a a scanner it turns your device camera into a scanner and you can get all your information in there. So why would you rebuild it? I don't think you would. No. And at number two is passwords and account apps. You could roll your own, but why do that when you've got one password just there? Supports encryption, Dropbox support, syncing, and it's constantly being updated. And number one is Contacts app. As I said earlier, I built a Contacts app in Access, but Contacts is just there. It syncs and it gets updated as well. And if you want something better, check out Busy Contacts from BusyMac.com. I'm excited. We've mentioned it a few few episodes ago, but the public beta will be available in September. And from the screenshots on the website, it looks awesome. Awesome. It does. And talking of awesome, you've got something to share, haven't you? I do. Although if you were with us at last week's Lightroom session, you'll have had a sneak peek at my new toy. Um, I recently had a new desk built and installed, much bigger than the previous one. Which was already twice the size of mine. It's not the size, it's what you do with it. Quite. Well, now it's probably four times the size of yours. At least. Anyway, it's so big... I've been able to add another monitor to my main setup. So my main working area now has a 27-inch iMac in the centre and two 24-inch monitors, one on either side. And it has made a huge difference. Um, There's a lot more room to place items that I'm working with instead of having stuff balanced precariously, which I had previously. So I've got on my desk iPads, iPhones, books, Kindles, my ARC notebook. And um, I actually do use all the space, more so than I expected. 
Uh, I actually took a photo. I don't know if I put, did I put that on my blog? I took a photo at a live session last summer because um, it was a technically demanding session and I was demonstrating multiple conferencing platforms. So I had several computers and um, numerous devices and you couldn't move for devices on the desk. So I took this photo because somebody wanted to see it. And um, when I saw it, I made the decision it wasn't big enough. So I took the decision to redesign the whole thing and um it actually increased the need to lose more paper because to get the desk in, I needed to lose a filing cabinet. So now I have a huge desk and I'm loving it. But following on from last week's discussion about whether I would revert to the pre-Mavericks monitor behaviour, I definitely don't want to lose two thirds of my screen real estate if I take a video or an app full screen. So no, I'm not going to. No way. Now, one huge difference with three monitors is Keynote. I had high hopes it might just fix all the issues. No, it actually exacerbated it. But first, the good news. Keynote does use or can use uh, all three monitors of a three monitor setup. And each of those monitors can be configured independently, which looked hopeful to me. There's a lovely heads up display style display to configure the whole thing. But now for the bad news. All these pretty configure buttons only allow you to access the same limited options that you get in the dual screen configuration. And it is still as stubborn in terms of what you can display on each monitor. Now, the problem I had with that, what it's still doing, is when you remove a panel, it automatically reorganises all of the other panels. So it's either blank or it's Apple's way. Another problem that I noticed with it was um, the Keynote primary monitor setup is wrong. So when you're in this view, which I'll, I'll put a screenshot of it in the show notes or do a blog post about it. Um, it's got the three monitors displayed and it tells you whether, you know, it shows you a little picture of what you've got on each one. And then at the top, it's got a name for it. And there's a star next to the left hand one. So I thought, what does the star mean? Anyway, I worked out what it meant was that that was the primary monitor, but it's not. And I have gone in and even after resetting it numerous times at system level, which you do in the displays preference pane, it's still convinced that the left monitor is the primary one and it's not. Now, I think that's ridiculous. Um, it's managed by dragging the menu in the displays. And I think that's nonsensical because now there's a menu on every screen. So it goes back to the fact that it still feels like a dirty hack. How they've implemented the multiple menu bars, you know, on the multiple monitors. Yeah. It still feels not quite all there. I could say I've got high hopes for Yosemite, but um, it'll probably be worse. <laughs> that's usually what happens. I could actually have done with your setup last week when I was delivering iPad training. I was using the work iPad Air to demo OneDrive and the Office apps. I had the iPad mirrored to the iMac via AirPlay and Reflector. I had WebEx running on the iMac. I was broadcasting the primary monitor to the course attendees. I had OneNote open on the iMac secondary monitor for my running order. And I had Skype open on the Mac secondary monitor, which I was using to dial into the teleconference for the audio. I had Hyper PDF open on the secondary monitor. Now, why? Well, I made a PDF of the PowerPoint presentation that I was showing at the start of the course. And the thing is, on a Mac, when you're running a PowerPoint slideshow with an external monitor connected, you have to choose either Mirror, which displays the slideshow on both monitors, or Presenter View, which displays your speaker's notes and upcoming slides on the second monitor, and then the presentation on the primary one. Whereas on Windows, you can choose to have the second monitor not used at all by PowerPoint. So on Windows, I would just have my speaker's notes in OneNote uh, on the second monitor and I could see them. So my speaker's notes were in OneNote. I needed to be able to see them on my second monitor. Which was when I suggested HyperPDF because HyperPDF has a presentation mode which displays the PDF full screen on one screen, but leaves the other screen available, which is exactly what you wanted. It was, yeah, exactly. Um, now, yes, I could have used OneNote on my personal iPad to see my notes and my running order, um, but I was actually using my 
iPad as a monitoring device. I'd logged into the WebEx using the WebEx app so that I could keep my eye on any network latency. Otherwise, I could be talking about something which the course attendees had not actually yet seen. Serious question for you, though. Why don't you use HyperPDF when you're presenting virtually? Ah, I wish I could. Because my speaker's notes are in Keynote and they don't come out of Keynote very easily. I could create the presentation in Keynote and then use something, probably, I I could use OneNote like you're talking about, but I would be thinking something like Omni Outliner to keep my notes in. But then I've got the problem of keeping them in sync. And that would be a nightmare because I often do rearrange slides and I can imagine me rearranging the slides and not rearranging the notes. That's nearly what I did. Yeah, I was rearranging the slides and then I had to remember to rearrange the notes. Exactly. Um, So I I do still use Keynote. It does mean presenting blind, though, completely, because I have no access to anything at all but Keynote on the main computer. And on that main computer, I will have my webinar platform. I will have my broadcasting software. What I do to compensate for that is I do have a running order on an iPad. I have a timer on my iPod Touch. I have access to the chat and uh, on another machine. And I have a, my YouTube control room on my MacBook Air. Which is seven screens. Which takes practice. And nerves of steel. Indeed. But now it's that time, the time everyone loves. It's time for... Mac Love Bites. Ooh. Yes, We heard from Jonathan, the lovely Jonathan Isaacs, and he says, Well, guys, it's been some time since I've expressed my love for MacBytes. So while I'm watching your Adobe Lightroom 101 session, I thought I would try to be a woman for a few moments and multitask. I subscribe to a fair few podcasts and the number has increased over the past 12 months. Quite a few have fallen by the wayside and I've stopped listening to them as time goes by. However, one podcast has stood the test of time and that's MacBytes. Unfortunately, due to some sad events, new episodes of MacBytes haven't appeared as often as I would have hoped. However, it's now great to be hearing Mike and Elaine more often. Every time I open my podcast app on my iPhone and see the podcast downloading notice, my heart skips a beat until I know whether it's a new episode of MacBytes coming my way. The podcast is just brilliant and you can liken it to being round at your extended family for afternoon tea. Only rather than talk about Aunt Beryl's second hip replacement, you're talking about far more important things in life, the latest tech. I hope you guys continue going from strength to strength and produce many more podcasts. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much for your really kind comments and especially for leaving them as a review on iTunes, which is much appreciated, Jonathan. It is. Cheers, Jonathan. Now, I had some fabulous feedback from you this week, didn't I, in a manner of speaking? It was Skype. It was not the best week for Skype. In fact, it's not been the best few weeks for Skype. Uh, First, we had a noticeable lag in the audio. Then we had a loud hiss in the background, and that that was loud, wasn't it? Yes. Well, despite several attempts, we were forced to give up and um, had to resort to using FaceTime audio, which had a whole range of problems of its own. Biggest of which, I thought, was no way to even know that someone was calling, much less answer it. But we finally got there, and not bad. Not bad. But we returned to Skype. Just habit, really, rather than a deliberate choice. And all was going reasonably well. Was. Yes, was. Until you vanished and I heard this. Is that you? That wasn't me. Well, it certainly wasn't me. Don't look at me. It's like working with Norman Collier. It went on so long, I actually asked if it was you. And just how long was it before you realised it wasn't me? Longer than you'd want me to admit. So, it seems we have a new stinger. I can see potential for this. What rating would you give this app? Yes, that works for me. Well, that's it for this episode of MacPites. And as you know by now, get in touch. We love to hear from you. Email, website, Facebook, Google Plus or any other method. We are on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash series. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So. What do you think of Max Bot Bot? I can honestly say, it's nothing compared to my illuminated backside.